It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it, because you're dead. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, presented by New York Lottery. Thanks so much for tuning in. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. Option number one, give us a ring at 973-667-1960. Option number two, head to social media. You can follow and interact with the two of us on Twitter. I'm at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network brought to you by Invest. Bank on the Giants mobile app, podcast platforms everywhere, and at Giants.com slash podcast. So we'll get into a variety of topics over the next 60 minutes. You had a busy weekend in the NFL. We'll give you our takeaways from Wild Card Weekend and how they could apply to the New York Giants as well as the National Championship game last night as we start to look ahead to the draft. Plus, Joe Judge was on WFAN this morning. A few notable observations that we'll run through from that standpoint as well. Paul, how are we doing today? Good morning, Lance. Uh, it's bright and clear outside. I really like that very much. I could use a little bit more on the temperature side, but what are you going to do? Well, still doable for you to get your power walk in, though. Oh, okay. As if I did 10 miles like yesterday, my yeah. friend. Wow, Ten, look at you. Not just okay. five. I did 10. There you go. Capitalizing. I like Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Very nice. So let's start with the national championship game since that was what happened last night. I was not surprised at all based on the outcome. Ohio State was down a few notable players, and then they had a few additional players that went down due to injury. Alabama is just stacked. I think we saw that firsthand as they cruised to a 52-24 victory. To me, what I think is extremely notable is how many playmakers Alabama has that can come out of the backfield and do damage in open space. They use wide receivers out of the backfield. They use running backs. And clearly, all the attention is going to be placed on Devontae Smith, who pretty much put in an entire game's worth in just one half. He missed the entire second half with the finger injury. I would be stunned, Paul, if he gets out of the top six or seven picks. I'd be very surprised if Devontae Smith is around by the time we get to the late numbers in the first 10 picks. Uh, you know, Lance, I, I'm waffling on that one. I, I, I thought initially that there was a good chance he'd be there, but now all the hype and everything, and obviously what he did last night was like superhuman. It, it makes me feel like there's a good chance he won't be there. But again, it comes down to how many quarterbacks are going to go, there are certainly some really good offensive linemen in this draft, which will probably go high because we know there are teams that desperately could use an offensive lineman that would get them, you know, to the next level in the National Football League. So the one thing I will say, there are really not a bunch of really high-rated defensive players in this draft. And, and that is going to probably push up some of these spectacular wide receivers which is going to make it real sticky for him to be there at 11 for the Giants. Um, you know what? If the Giants sign a, uh, a Robinson or if they sign a, a Galladay, well, then they don't necessarily need to pick a wide receiver at 11 because they'll get their big play wide receiver in free agency. So, again, that's why, you know, you and I kind of hesitate to talk a lot about the draft at this point in the calendar because there's still so much that has to be done. 
Well, you have the first layer of the offseason, which is free agency, as you talked about. See, unlike other leagues, free agency comes before the draft in the NFL. So sometimes the needs that emerge right now all of a sudden are not there anymore once March comes around because they address that in free agency. Now, granted, just because you address a position in free agency, of course, Paul, doesn't mean that you then can't double up and draft a similar position this is a true. few months later. So, this you know, I true. wouldn't read that much into it. But, yes, the names you brought up, Allen Robinson from the Bears, Kenny Galladay from the Lions, are two guys that certainly the Giants could look at, and I'm sure they're going to have interest across the league. I'm bringing up Devontae Smith more so than whether or not he's going to be around at 11 for the Giants. Just what I look at him, Paul, is I don't label him as a wide receiver. I think, once again, we get too caught up in labels for players. Devontae Smith is a weapon because any team that drafts him, they're going to look at him as we can move him around. He's versatile, and we don't necessarily have to just say that he's a wide receiver who's going to run deep routes. We could get him out in open space. We could utilize him out of the backfield. And the more and more you're seeing those type of players, like a Saquon Barkley, for example, teams don't quantify or qualify them, Paul, I would argue, as just a running back or a wide receiver. That's mm-hmm. why, to me, a guy like Devontae Smith has additional value to go maybe higher than a conventional wide receiver because of the many different ways that you can line him up and utilize it. You know, I think it's interesting, too, when you talk about the versatility and how much you'd like to use him and in all the different spots you'd want to put him on the field in. It does beg the question, when you think about Jamar Chase, who is that other guy in that cluster of very high wide receivers, you're talking about a guy who's got at least 25 to 30 pounds on Smith. And if you're going to talk about a player as an offensive weapon who may be utilized in so many different ways and may get a lot of touches, would it concern you that Smith is so much more of a slight frame and build than a guy like Jamar Chase as they go up to the NFL level? Well, I think that you have to at least take that into consideration. However, with that being said, I mean, how many small guys have we seen in the NFL and you worry about, oh, my God, if we expose them to too many hits? I'm throwing out examples, and I'm not saying that they're anywhere in the talent pool of a Devontae Smith. But you look at a Danny Woodhead, for example. He carved out a lengthy career. Cole Beasley is still going strong between the Cowboys and the Bills. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could give you a lot of guys who are small stature, Paul, but you know what? I would say their toughness makes up for it. And it's all about the player in how they train, how they keep their body in shape, and also how they go about protecting themselves during a game. Are they exposing themselves to unnecessary hits? Do they understand when it's necessary to give up on a play? It's no different than when we talk about, right, the mobile running quarterbacks. The difference between sliding and taking what the defense gives you versus staying in bounds and absorbing a few other hits. So I wouldn't be that concerned. This is just, once again, this is my personal opinion when it comes to stature and body build. It's more about does the player have good discipline and can make good split-second decisions on the field? If the player can prove that to me, then I wouldn't get overwhelmed on the fact that, oh, my God, I'd be worried if he takes three extra hits in the NFL, he's all of a sudden going to end up on IR. Well, of most importance, and we know this with quarterbacks, you have to know how to take those hits. Sure. And that's a very big deal. So let me make something clear. I'm not suggesting that Devonta Smith all of a sudden should drop or he's not going to be a terrific NFL player. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying if you're on the board and you have Smith and Chase staring you in the face, what are the questions you have to ask yourself to try to separate them, even if it's as thin as a Kleenex tissue? What are the questions you have to ask yourself when you actually make that pick? And I think one of the questions you will have to ask is about the physical build 
and the potential for durability. Uh, I don't know that, that I would go to Chase. I think I probably would take Devontae Smith over Chase. But I think it's a worthy question that somebody's going to have to ask themselves if those two guys are sitting there. I think that's a question. I also think, once again, can we utilize Smith more than Chase in terms of where we line him up and so forth? What does our offensive scheme call for? Could he be somebody that can come in on as a special team guy and chip in in that department? I mean, all of those different layers have to, I think, be unraveled before you determine who you want to draft. But once again, the reason why I wouldn't be surprised if a guy like Smith goes relatively high is because teams are envisioning we're going to find many different ways to maximize his talent and put him on the field. And (laughs) the more and more you look at today's NFL, as we now branch out to the playoffs and so forth, it's always the cliched line, the more you can do, because then the more you can stay on the field and prove that you have value, but also players that get out in open space in today's NFL, it's a speed game. Lamar Jackson, you look at that big run he had against Tennessee, okay, on Sunday in the wild card game. That was a huge difference maker. And then he wound up with another one, Paul, later in the game to essentially seal the contest. The first one I was referring to was the monster touchdown that he had where he found the alley and then all of a sudden he ran up the right sideline. When you have guys like that who can turn what is a five-yard pass or (laughs) what looks like to be right, no space to operate with, Paul, and then you could turn that into a touchdown, look at the Tennessee-Baltimore game. That's the difference between winning and losing and moving on to the next round. So I think teams are looking at that and they're saying, how do we get our hands on a playmaker like that? Oh, I I don't think there's any doubt about it. And to be honest, when you look at a guy like Chase and a guy like Smith, that's like, would you like the silver Mercedes or the navy (laughs) blue one? Yeah, which really one would you like? Exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I you know you hate to be the guy who's picking there because you don't want to pick the wrong one. But on the other hand, you want to be that guy because you can't pick the wrong one. They're both going to be good. <laughs> and here's the thing about wide receivers: there's been a lot of quality wide receivers that have been taken in the first round over the last few years. Specifically, if you go back to last year's draft class. And more often than not, those guys make a relatively strong transition from college to the NFL. So I would say the high percentage is in your favor in taking a wide receiver, whether it be high or low in the first round, and having that individual make quite an impact. For example, A.J. Brown, you look at a Tennessee, he was part of the class two years ago. And then, I mean, I could give you the laundry list of the Justin Jeffersons, the Chase Claypools, plenty of guys from last year's class. So, you know, that's another reason why I think if you can get your hands on a playmaker like that, don't hesitate. Take that individual because, you know, I'm a big believer in it's not where you pick, it's what you do with the pick. But I'm also a believer in take the guy that you think is also going to have the biggest impact, not just necessarily from a year from now, but over the course of the rookie contract. So if you feel good about a guy like Smith or Chase and you say, hey, you know, we can envision this guy doing damage and getting better and better over a four to five year period, you take him. Whether Mm -hmm. or not it's your number one need, you can never have enough playmakers. And it goes back to the Giants, Paul. When we had conversations all offseason, we were talking about how in all likelihood the offense is going to have to do a lot of the heavy lifting because the defense is young, the defense doesn't have a lot of proven playmakers, and it actually turned out to be the opposite. Well, why did it turn out to be the opposite this season? A big part of that was the fact that when we were having conversations and laying out all the personnel on paper, that personnel was not 100% and consistently on the field over the course of the 2020 season. So when you have those movable parts in and out of the lineup, you better have depth. 
you better have other guys that could step in and be that type of a game-changing playmaker. If you don't, it completely changes the dynamics of your offense, and I think that was on full display for the Giants this season. Well, you know, Lance, I always talk about the quicksand of mediocrity, and the bottom line is when you talk about these coaches who will bring up four or five plays will make the difference in a game, that's really kind of what you're talking about right there because it's those playmakers who may be able to turn a mundane play into a score or, for that matter, a 50-yard gain that results in a score that winds up being the difference in the game. There's no doubt about it, and that's why I referenced the Baltimore-Tennessee game because I think that was notable. Exactly. When you look at the Rams-Seahawks game, which was a little bit more lopsided, but look at what Darius Williams did with the pick six off Russell Wilson. And considering you come in with John Wolford, you lose him early to a neck injury. Jared Goff is not 100% because he's coming off of thumb surgery. The defense knew, hey, we better do a lot of the heavy lifting, give ourselves a lead early, and then don't put our offense in a precarious spot. The Rams' defense answered the call. But how did they do that? Between Aaron Donald and Darius Williams and a lot of their other playmakers, they were able to make those game-changing plays. So, you know, there's another example where it doesn't always have to be a 60-yard scramble for a touchdown, Paul, but Mm -hmm. you've got to have those guys that could come through and make those plays where it either changes field position, it sets your offense up for a touchdown, or better yet, as I just referenced with the Rams, you actually put a score on the board because of an opportunistic play by your defense. I thought that was the common theme, by the way, over Wild Card Weekend. I can look at all six games, and I can tell you somebody on the winning team made that extra effort game-changing play, whether it was a lopsided game or a close game, and that ultimately is why that team won. Well, you know, it's funny, Lance, you you, you talk about how sometimes it's a score and sometimes it's not a score. It can be as simple as a huge third down conversion that was at the beginning of a scoring drive. You know, it does not have to be a score. You're a thousand percent correct. It might be that on a third and 11, that receiver went up and made a tiptoe grab, leaping against the sideline, pulled it down was a first down on the third play of what turned out to be a 12-play march. And that's what's important about it. You know, you talk about guys making plays for their quarterback. That's, that's, you know, it's funny. Dave Gettleman and John Mara, they didn't use those phrases. They just said, you know, we need to get more playmakers on offense. Okay, what it comes down to is something that I've been talking about for years, and that is play above the X's and the O's, you know, Make plays for your quarterback. And the Giants, to be perfectly frank with you, you know, it's it's something that uh, has really been been barren around here for a long time. And, and, and I include Odell Beckham Jr. in that conversation because you could talk about all the short passes that he turned into long gains. That's great. But how many times did he outfight a guy to make a catch? And I'm being serious, Lance. Think about it. In all the years he was with the Giants, did he make some athletic catches, some jaw-dropping plays after he had the ball? Sure. But how many times did he actually outfight a defensive back to make a big grab for a first down or for a touchdown? Can you remember too many of them? 
The only one that I can think of is the one-handed grab, where I would say, you know, he went above and beyond in terms of getting up over the defender. I mean, that is one that comes to mind. Well, Most the, of the yeah, other the, plays, the, to the, your the, point, were the play against Dallas, you mean. long touchdowns. Against Dallas, correct. Yeah, but, yeah. but again, he wasn't fighting the defensive back for that ball. It was an athletic grab, truly one of the most spectacular grabs we've ever seen. But he wasn't out fighting the defensive back. He didn't have to reach through him or reach around him or clutch the ball out of his chest or there weren't four hands in his face while he was pulling it in. That's what I'm talking about. When I say contested catch, I'm talking about did you literally have to fight for that ball, not just make an acrobatic grab? There's a difference in my mind. Well, the play that comes to mind in a Giants game, just to bring this full circle, is the one that Mark Andrews made against the Giants a few weeks ago. With Baltimore. There you go. If you remember, right, there was one, I believe yep. it was up the right sideline. There was at least three Giants defenders, I want to say, in the vicinity, and Andrews jumped up, and he just won a battle between three guys. He wanted it more. He came up with it. It's those types of plays yes. that is the difference between continuing a drive to your point versus all of a sudden something stalling, you have to settle for a field goal, or you have to bring on the punt team. Yes, and, and the last Giant to consistently be able to make those plays was Akeem Nix. Nix is certainly a guy that comes to mind. And you could go through Giants' recent history, and there's a few guys that have made a collection of plays together. But I think what you're pointing at, at least my interpretation, Paul, is more of the volume, meaning can one guy make – you're not expecting it maybe to happen every single game, but out of 16 games, can you come back and say he made eight above the X's and O's types of plays? And you know what? Maybe that was the difference between giving you two or three extra wins versus falling short. Can and be. And that's the difference between making and missing out on the playoffs. Can be, you know. And, uh, look, Plexico Burris did it all the time. He practically did it every week. He was that special. You know, Toomer was able to do that a, a lot. Knicks is the last one who did it a lot, you know. I mean, Victor Cruz did it sometimes, but not as much as Knicks. Knicks well, Plex also Knicks, had the size too, Paul, remember Sure, and that's why I keep saying all the time I want a skyscraper because your guys who are 6'3 and 6'4, those are the guys who are usually more physical, who have the length, and are going to be able to win those 50-50 balls and those fights for the football. That, the, those are the guys who usually do it. The guys who are usually 6 feet, 5'11", 6, 5'10", 6 feet, maybe 6'1", those guys usually don't do it. Now, Knicks was only 6'2", but he had such long arms and such big, strong hands, he played the 50-50 ball as if he was a skyscraper, and that's what allowed him to be that way. That's, I, know, I know I'm really kind of separating you know, little piles of, of sugar or, or salt on the table here. But there is a difference between the kind of guy I'm talking about and the kind of spectacular receiver that Beckham was. And in my, in my book, I'm, I'm really kind of looking for that, that other kind of guy. I want that guy who's going to fight for the ball. Well, that's why I don't get too caught up in size. I'm with you, though. I want the guy that maybe can even play above his size, and we see that in basketball, we see that in football. I'll give you a quick example before we open up the phone lines here of exactly what you were talking about. I don't know who he did this on, but there was in the Colts-Bills game, I remember there was a play where Phillip Rivers threw to Jack Doyle, his tight end, and there was a Bills defensive back literally on his back 
I mean, it was basically like he was giving me a piggyback ride during the course of the game. And Rivers threw it up. Doyle made the catch. And that was one of those plays where you say, hey, you know what? He sort of posted the guy up because he had the size advantage. Mm -hmm. And you know they easily could have threw a flag, but he didn't let that get to him. He still made the play. I mean, that's the example, at least, that comes to mind in terms of what you were bringing up. Do you have that guy, whether he has the size or not, despite what the defender is doing, nothing's going to prevent him from getting the football and, most important, closing and finishing the play. You know, there have been guys that they go up, they jump up, they make an effort. The second layer of that, Paul, is can you actually go up, finish it, yes. even though you may have guys all over you? Exactly. You, 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 you and I understand each other here, Lance. And sure. It's, it's that the 50-50 ball becomes an 80-20 ball for my guy because he's that good at winning that fight. And that's what it comes down to. I don't want to mark down on my, my pad that that was an incomplete pass defense. I want to mark down that was complete for a first down. Big Blue Kickoff Live brought to you by the New York Lottery. Introducing Money Dots, a new game from the New York Lottery where you play for your chance to win money on the dot. Please play responsibly. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here. Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Some takeaways from Wild Card Weekend, the National Championship game. We will get into some of Joe Judge's comments in a little bit on WFAN this morning. In the meantime, let's open up the phone lines. Phil is in North Carolina. What's happening, Phil? Hey, guys. Uh, happy New Year. I haven't talked to you in a while. Thank you. Uh, you just, too. Uh, thank you very much. A uh, couple of things. One is, I think we need both types of receivers, and I'm with you guys 90%. Uh, I think we need a set, what I call a separation receiver and a contesting con- contest catch receiver. We need both. And the reason why I say we need both is uh, Daniel's not used to, we haven't had a contest catch guy, and I think Daniel needs one some easy throws that are separation based rather than purely contesting based and so i think we need both types of receivers so uh that's my first point uh and i have two other points do you want me to yeah why don't you give us the other points and then we'll expand upon it Uh, okay uh evan ingram um I, you know, diagnosing his his catching, uh, it seems to me that he's got uh, most of his problems were with when his hands are above the shoulders, and his hands aren't close enough when he's trying to make those catches. So he's either got, uh, I don't think it's necessarily a tracking issue. I think it's a technique issue in that his maybe his hand speed to uh, get above the shoulder and squeeze is an issue. And uh, and I guess the last thing is, you know, I I want uh, uh, you know physical physical players primarily, and uh, I'm not crazy on the uh, the fellow from last night only because he's only 175 pounds, and we have people like Sam Beal, who's 175 pounds, who probably will never contribute to this team. So those are my three points, that, and I'll listen off the air. Thank you. All right, Phil. Appreciate the phone call. Well, first of all, Beal opted out, so he still could very well come back. He's under contract. Remember, those contracts carry over, so I wouldn't go so far to say that. There's no chance that he's going to contribute to the team. Unfortunately, he dealt with injuries right when he joined the Giants, but he opted out. I mean, that was the reason why he wasn't on the field. It didn't necessarily have to do with a health issue from uh, an injury standpoint. As far as Evan Ingram is concerned, Paul, I've brought this up on previous shows. 
I would agree with the observation that it could be technique involved. I don't know necessarily if it's a hands thing. I've brought up that I've seen him jump a lot where maybe it's unnecessary to jump. And if he just gets squared and set and lets the ball come to him and then obviously aggressively pursues it. But instead of jumping up to get it, I think sometimes he may make it a little bit more challenging on himself. So that's the technique aspect that I've observed. So I think there's a variety of ways that you could look at it. And, I mean, we pretty much tackled the wide receiver point, which is what the caller hit on first, where, you know, you can add a playmaker, you add versatility. I don't think it hurts the Giants at this point. No, to be frank with you, if they were able to get one receiver that has each of those traits and add two guys, you know, a a guy who's going to make contested catches, a skyscraper and a physical guy, and then also add a burner, boy, wouldn't that be a luxury? How many teams can do that in one offseason? No, it's very challenging. (laughs) The other thing is that Saquon Barkley, you hope, comes back, and and there's another guy that you can get him the ball whether he has a defender on him or not, and he's able to create open space in terms of his fundamentals and Mm -hmm. technique. So that's another guy that you couldn't account for this season who you don't have to go out and acquire. He's already on the roster, and I think that could very well at least help Daniel Jones – move the chains without necessarily having to throw the ball 50-some-odd yards down the field. I offer you this question, Lance, and I don't know that that I think he is, but do you think that Slayton, who has had a very nice, deep yards-per-catch average over the last two years, now we know he played with a bad foot most of this season, but he has been a big-play receiver downfield. Now he is not necessarily a physical Spider-Man skyscraper contested 50-50 balls guy. He's certainly not one of those. But does he make enough of big plays, and is his yardage after the catch enough that when healthy, you would be okay with him filling that role on the offense? Well, I think he's got the skill set and the talent to do what you're talking about. It's just a matter of whether or not the Giants envision that and want him to move around from that standpoint. I mean, they didn't necessarily put him in a lot of positions with respect to this season where I think we got a glimpse of some of that. Does that mean that he's incapable of doing it or they can't explore? No, I don't necessarily think that way. I think it depends on when you get Slayton, Barkley, Shepard, Evan Ingram, and whoever else they add, who is best to line up in one spot, and who do they feel is most effective based on the route that they're running. I think that's what it really comes down to. But I'm all for if they want to move Slayton around and they want to try to put him in positions to test what he could do, I think that's the ideal situation. I go back to also what reminds me of what you were talking about, Paul. Tyke Tolbert, the Giants wide receivers coach, one of the things that he always emphasizes when the media asks him questions about a specific wide receiver or, you know, who are you going to replace this guy with? He says, listen, we teach all our wide receivers to know every single position because Mm -hmm. there may be a circumstance where they have to take on a role that we didn't necessarily envision it, but because of injury, that's what it calls for. So from at least my interpretation, Tolbert is teaching his wide receivers to know every single spot within the offense. Whether or not they utilize them in that spot is a different story. But nobody should necessarily look at the Giants and say, oh, well, they're just categorizing this guy or they're pigeonholing this guy as a vertical threat or they're pigeonholing this guy as a slot guy. No, that's not what they're doing. When you go to practice 
and what they're emphasizing in the classroom. It's just they may not throw those guys in those positions. See, the interesting part, and I do get comments on Twitter, Lance, and I know we want to get right back to the call, so I'll make this one very brief. I really love Sterling Shepard in the slot, and I do think he is one of the better wide receivers in the NFL from that spot. I'm not as much enjoying or enamored with him lining up outside on the boundary. And for me, that's all the more reason why I would want, and again, if Devontae Smith winds up with the Giants at 11, I'm not going to say boo-hoo-hoo. Trust me. I would be very, very happy to watch this guy play every single Sunday and make game-changing plays. So please, I don't want this misinterpreted. But the reason that I personally would have a preference of getting the bigger, stronger, skyscraper-type receiver is because I think if you've got that guy and Slayton outside and have Shepard in the slot, to me, it's the most complete trio that you can put on the field. In terms of what the defense would have to account for. Correct. Yeah. And that may be something that could very well help the Giants. I mean, once again, I'm not the type of person that gets caught up too much in terms of the size you have out there. I think it comes down to the skill set, the execution. But if you get a big guy, a target for Daniel Jones, whether you utilize him in the middle of the field or the red zone, is that going to hurt the Giants? Absolutely not. If anything, to your point, it's going to give them some versatility. And the more you can get the defense to think about – Do we need to double this guy? Are we comfortable with one-on-one coverage? The better. I'm looking just as a means of comparison before we head back to the lines here in terms of, and every draft class is different, but when you look at the 2020 NFL draft and you look at the breakdown in the top 10 in terms of how many offensive players went versus how many defensive players went on offense, and remember, there were a few quarterbacks here, so that could throw off the numbers, but you had one, two, three, four, five, offensive players and you had five defensive players so it was an even split through the first 10 of last year's draft just to give you an idea now Mm -hmm. once again the quarterbacks easily threw that off because you had three quarterbacks go within the top 10 this year could it happen absolutely maybe the number goes down maybe teams are not necessarily high on this class so you know that remains to be seen but once again I'd say right now I'd be very surprised if a team doesn't look at a guy like Smith and capitalize him within the top 10. Let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, 973-667-1960. And a reminder, Giants fans, get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with the Giants branded debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at investorsbank.com slash Giants, member FDIC. Eddie is in Charlotte joining us here. What's happening, Eddie? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thanks for taking the call. Thanks for making sure. it. What do you got for us? Um, just want to touch on a couple of topics that you've been talking about the last couple of days. Lance, I heard you talking last week about Evan Ingram and how it's it's, it's really good that he's still on a, a rookie contract and, and you think you should bring him back. The one thing I didn't hear you say is how much they're going to have to pay him. And I believe a 50-year tight end, is going to be paid about nine and a half million dollars, somewhere around there. I don't think the Giants should give Evan Ingram nine million dollars. I think they could use that money someplace else. Second well, first of all, if you look at line. if you look at the tight end though, compared to the rest of the league, Evan Ingram's contract is actually a bargain. So don't look at the number on an island. If you look at where his ranking is in terms of contract, he is not even in the top fifteen. 
with respect to that. And there's value to that, especially with the cap going down. And also, you got to be careful in terms of the guarantees if you get rid of a player like that, too. So, you know, all of those things have to be taken into consideration as opposed to, you know, fans here or there just thinking, well, you know, he drops a pass here or there, so there's no way they could utilize him moving forward. Yeah, what you, what you no, have to I, understand I, I, is I that... I understand that. I'm just saying that the production that you're getting out of him, no matter what you pay him, is, whether it's $9 million, $8 million, to me... Actually, it's, it's only six. Okay, it's only six. He's going to get a six million dollar base salary in twenty twenty one, which, as as Lance has already said, and I've said this on the program literally dozens of times in the last two weeks, puts him out of the top fifteen highest paid tight ends in the league, and he happens to be amongst the top seven or eight tight ends in the league in terms of catches, yards, uh, the whole ball of wax. I mean, and since he's been in the league. He's clearly in the top six tight ends in terms of his statistical production. So I appreciate what you're saying, but for every time you think you're better off without a guy, think about what the uh, ensuing cost is going to be yeah. to get somebody of either comparable or better to put into the lineup. And chances are, if you want to get a tight end who's going to be more productive than Ingram, albeit more consistent, you're going to pay a heck of a lot more than what he's on the books for. Uh, I guess we'll agree to disagree on that one. Well, no, the um, facts are the facts. It's not about agreeing to disagree. You could you could you could disagree with if you think you think he is a player that you want. We could totally disagree on that, and that's fine because I understand the inconsistencies and the frustration. We cannot disagree, however, on the salary he's making and where his salary ranks in terms of value compared to other salaries at his position in the league. Those are facts. You and I can't argue that. Those are facts. Okay. I got you. I got you. Now, one thing we can argue about. Last year I called you, and we had a little heated argument about last time, uh, about uh, Thomas' left tackle. I told you that they should put him in right away, and you said no way you're going to throw him into the fire. That you you were Solder wasn't coming back, so you know I don't know what they were going to do, you know, without put, without starting him. But you would not start him if if he was you know a rookie. And if you played him at right tackle, and Solder did play, he'd be starting at left tackle for the first year today, for the first time this year, and he would have had that valuable experience. So I just want you to, you know, tell me if I was right or wrong about Thomas starting right off the bat. Well, I don't know if you're talking to Lance or me, but my thought all along was that assuming Solder was coming back, and that was pre-pandemic, the idea for me would have been to start Thomas on the right side and Solder was going to stay on the left side until proven otherwise that you'd be better off moving him. I think that was the general consensus. I don't know. I don't know where else no, I would right. go with that, that. That was the consensus. But my point was, if you did that and say they got rid of Solder this year, then you'd right. have to start Thomas at left tackle, and he would be like a rookie all over again, starting a new position. Well, that, that was my point. To some de- to, to some degree, you're right. If that had happened and he had exclusively played there, but knowing what we now know about Coach Joe Judge, chances are. Even if Solder had started this particular 2020 season as the left tackle, I'd say there's a pretty good bet that Judge would have given Thomas some snaps on the left side because he has shown a propensity to try to get rookies some experience during their first season in the league. 
So I think he would have gotten some snaps on the left side, even if Solder had been the starter. And maybe, who knows, by midseason, he might have supplanted him anyway. So in truth, I don't know that either you nor I are 100% correct. Yeah, because Matt Kemp got snaps on both sides, and he wasn't necessarily a regular starter. Exactly. So if Andrew Thomas wasn't a starter, let's say, this season, let's say Nate Solder doesn't opt out, it's possible that they would have rotated him in on both sides just to get him some reps and snaps. Sure, sure. And there's been other rookies, by the way, Eddie, that have started out on the right side and then have made their way to the left side after a year or two in their career. That's actually the most popular way to develop a left tackle is to not start him out on the left side immediately, start him out on the right, and move him over. By the way, where do you think Nate Solder started? Nate yeah. Solder started on the right side. Yeah, he did. So there's really no, no right or wrong here, that. Eddie, to be honest with you. I, I, that, that part I understand, but, but, but Solder, when he played the right side, he probably had, they probably had a, a decent left tackle. The Giants didn't have a, a, a decent left tackle if Solder was coming back. Now, we could disagree about that, but I felt all along that Thomas should have started, you know, right off the bat. But well, first of all, they started him to begin with, number one. And number two, something tells me that that conversation, and I don't know, we'd have to go back to the archives, probably took place before Solder made his decision about opting out. Because from what I recall, we went through a lot of those scenarios last offseason, and I don't think anybody was necessarily anticipating that Nate Solder was going to opt out 100%. So if Nate Solder didn't opt out, I think the logical plan would have been Solder's your left guy, Thomas is your right guy, and then they could explore things throughout the course of the season. And by the way, Matt Light, who was 33 at the time, was the starting left tackle and doing a very good job of it for many, many years, a multiple-time pro bowler. He was the starting left tackle when Solder was drafted. And so Belichick put him on the right side and kept light on the left side, which made perfect sense at the time. Right, but at that time, light was a better player than Solder was last year. I would agree with that. I would agree with that, you know. But again, we're we're looking in the rearview mirror about something that's so hypothetical, and I don't honestly believe that there's a right or wrong answer to it. I think we're better off talking about what the Giants are going to do with their their offensive linemen in, in 2021, aren't we? True, that, that's my next question. I figured that because of salary cap, Zeitler, Fleming are going to be gone. Now, they can bring him back cheaper, but you figure Pert will probably be the left tackle. But Hernandez has lost his job for some reason. I don't know if it's because of run blocking or pass protection, but he lost his job. And uh, Are the Giants comfortable putting him in you know, right tackle now, it's, it's, or are they going to look for something else? Well, economically, okay, you could make an economic argument uh, to do something with Zeitler, whether it's a pay cut or a restructure or, or a release. Economically, you could make that argument if you wanted to. There's some logic behind it. There's also logic saying, you know what? He is the most veteran, most productive guy on the offensive line. Don't want to lose him. But now what comes into play? Well, how much money do you need under the cap to fill up all your other holes? knowing that you could potentially have Hernandez as your left guard and Lemieux as your right guard. There are a lot of tentacles that are going to go into that decision. Cameron Fleming, to me, is an easier one because I would, if I were the Giants, I'd ask him if he wants to come back and compete because I suspect that Thomas is going to start at left tackle opening day. I don't think that's a stretch. But I think that Fleming and Parrott would compete again at the right tackle spot, and if Parrott is ready to seize the job week one, then he is. 
I like Cameron Fleming being the third tackle on this team as the swing backup. I don't think there's any problem having him do that at all. Of I course, personally, well, I think of, between know. the two of them right now, if he came back, he would start because, you know, Fern doesn't have a lot of experience. And, you know, doesn't mean he can't beat him out during and, camp if there's a real camp, you know. Right, right. All right, Eddie. Appreciate the phone call. Thanks Lance, so much. you for, like Fleming, don't you? I think you, 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 you thought Fleming did an adequate job. Well, I think Fleming as a swing tackle potentially, and if they want to consider starting him, is certainly a guy that should be in the mix. I mean, I'm also, once again, we're going down the hypothetical road. Assuming Solder's back, I mean, Solder could very well be the right tackle. Andrew Thomas could be the left tackle. And then you still want a backup swing tackle. So Fleming can fill that role based on my hypothetical. What I wanted to jump in on is, you know, you were talking about the guard situation. I personally, at least as it stands right now, and, and things could dramatically change based on the drafted free agency, I would not be in a rush to part ways with Kevin Zeitler so much. And I'm not saying you said that, Paul. No. The reason being is because, to the caller's point, Hernandez was not getting a lot of snaps later in the season. And Shane Lemieux, while, yeah, he was thrown into the fire, and I think he showed some flashes, I don't know if the Giants truly say to themselves, we've got a perfect feeling of what we're getting out of Shane Lemieux. So I, I think based on... Hernandez is playing time. Lemieux still being a young guy, having a guy like Zeitler still on the roster holds a tremendous amount of value. I would not be so quick to say, hey, let's move on from him. Now, granted, you brought up the money aspect, and they've got some defensive players they got to take care of, and in all likelihood, the cap's going to go down. So I'm not saying it's so simple. I'm saying outside of looking at it from a financial standpoint, just from an X's and O's standpoint, I think a guy like Zeitler has a great value on this team because of the inexperience at the guard position. Well, see, there we go again, having to put the business angle uh, injected into the football angle. From a football angle, there's no doubt, Lance. There's no doubt you'd rather have Zeitler on this team if it was just about football and what's on the field. But, you know, unfortunately... The economics of the salary cap and free agency and all this other stuff that the, you know that that are in the equation, they force your hand into very often doing things that football-wise you would never even consider, and that's the problem. The New York Giants at Quest Diagnostics want our fans to come back stronger than ever. Now you can order your own lab test through Quest Direct to get the health answers you need most. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is brought to you by the New York Lottery, introducing Money Dots, a new game from the New York Lottery where you play for your chance to win money on the dot. Please play responsibly. Let's head back to the phone lines as we move along here. Neil is in Brewster. What's happening, Neil? Hello, guys. How you doing? Doing right, Hi. Neil. What do you got for us? I have a question. Do you guys like the players... Do we what? I, you jumped out there. I didn't hear your full question. Do you grade the players each year after the season? You mean like a like a teacher, A, B, C, D? No. Yeah. Do you, do you, oh, you don't grade like a Daniel Jones on no. his performance for the season? No. No. I think we, we leave that to people who sit in front of their computers all around the country and call themselves analytics guys. <laughs> uh, well, I sit in front of my computer, but I'm not an analytics guy. Um I, I I just I I think he's one of the biggest problems. I don't think he made any progress. Uh, he he doesn't do a pre a good job pre snap in my opinion. Uh, and he uh, it was I don't know. I know we're not going to take a, a quarterback. I know we're sticking with him. Uh, 
And and you look at Evan Ingram, the, the subject of Evan Ingram, there seems to be no real chemistry between them. In my in my view, the way like say Troy Aikman and Jay Novacek to go back a ways, or um, who's a Witten and Tony Rome. They're just does Evan Ingram ever like come and make a clever play when Daniel well, Jones? Keep in, in mind, trouble? you know, the two guys you named, the two duos. I mean, those guys were together for a decade. We're talking about okay. Evan Ingram has been with Daniel Jones for. Not even two full seasons because between the both of them missing time, they haven't been on the field for, I don't even know if you add up all the games. I'd be wondering if they've been on the field for a full 16-game slate. I, I think I'm just kind, over that. I'm kind of curious. You know, Ingram led the Giants in targets, the only guy who had over 100 targets this year. How do you define chemistry when he was his most often targeted receiver? Because whenever, whenever those guys were in trouble, somehow – Witten, who's got to be, I don't know, a full second slower almost in the 40, would find a way to just be open in the middle of the field. Here I am, throw me the ball, you're out of trouble. Whereas this guy, I don't know, I'm very disappointed with the combination of the two of them, and I guess we're moving forward with both of them. But uh, I'll listen to your thoughts on the subject. Thank you, guys. I you should have a two-hour show, by the way. Appreciate it. Thank you. Be well. Uh, Lance, I think, I think the frustration and the disappointment that Ingram's production has not lived up to his potential, you know, forces people to then widespread and umbrella the criticism into other areas. I don't have a problem with him and Jones, you know, uh, chemistry-wise. I don't think that, that Jones has anything against him. I don't think he doesn't look for him. I don't think he doesn't want to throw to him. I don't think that's an issue at all. Now, we could talk all you want about Ingram's drops, but that doesn't have to do with any kind of relationship that he and Jones have. At least I don't see it that way. No, neither do I. I don't think it's a chemistry issue at all, and I still go back to my premise, despite the fact that you brought up how many targets Evan Ingram had, and he was targeted 109 times. The next closest guy, just to give you perspective, Darius Slayton at 96. So clearly he leaned on him a lot, but I still go by how many total games were the two of them on the field together, and the volume's not there. So once again, I'm thinking more of the caller was bringing up Jay Novacek and Jason Witten. I mean, if you go back and you look at how many games Jay Novacek was on the field with Aikman and Witten and Tony Romo, if you want to use that, because those two are probably together for the most part, it's ridiculous compared to Evan Ingram and Daniel Jones. So, I mean, that's just not a fair comparison. I also go back to the difference between execution and a player not being on the same page with the quarterback, Paul, okay, right? Those mm -hmm. are two different things, at mm -hmm. least in my interpretation. Sure. And I think a lot of the mishaps for Evan Ingram this season is the lack of execution as opposed to him and Daniel Jones not necessarily being on the same page. And by the way, when I say lack of execution, I'm not just pinning it all on Evan Ingram. You could also pin it. There were some throws where Daniel threw behind Evan, and then Evan may get a fingertip on it, Paul, and all of a sudden that becomes a deflection, and it ends up as an interception. So you got to really see the stream go both ways. It's execution issues. To me, it's not necessarily chemistry issues. I think when you define guys not being on the same page, go back several years when Ruben Randall was on the team and Eli had like 23 interceptions during the season and nine of them were targets to Ruben Randall where he either totally blew the route 
and ran the wrong route entirely or had the ball go through his hands, but mostly ran the wrong route. Now, that was definitely a problem about not being on the same page. He was just never in the right spot. And when you're throwing a timing pattern and a timing pass, you better be in the right spot or something bad's going to happen. Well, that's why I'm just trying to think back over the course of these last two seasons, a situation where Daniel threw the ball and then Evan looked at him or Daniel looked at Evan and you could tell, all right, somebody wasn't on the same page. I there remember a couple mostly, of those. There'll be a few every year, but that's not to say but, it's habitual. Correct. Not enough of a volume, I guess, is my point, Paul, where it was noticeable as a trend. What was a trend was Evan maybe not making the catch or Daniel not putting it where Evan could make the catch. That, to me, was more of something that was noticeable. And that, once again, is not necessarily a chemistry issue. That could be because maybe Daniel Jones, and I don't remember every single throw that he made to Evan Ingram, okay? But it could have been guy stepped in his way and there was pressure. So Daniel had to get rid of the ball earlier or Evan got, you know, jammed at the line of scrimmage and that threw off the timing a little bit. All of those factors come into play. I I just think way too much of the frustration that fans have had with Evan Ingram is now, to your point, Paul, getting branched out to all other areas where I don't think there's a great deal of validity behind those arguments. You know, we're, we're agreeing way too much today. Well, hey, sometimes a squirrel finds a nut, right? It's one of those days where the squirrels in New York City, man, they're finding a lot of nuts. And today. even worse, we're actually understanding each other, and that's well, really dangerous. Go. Well, here's the thing. I more often than not understand you, okay? Understanding you and agreeing well, that should with be you scary. are two different things, okay? I've had enough you reps may, around you. Okay, you may want to see a doctor about that. Yeah, well, let, let's build a parallel here between Daniel Jones and Evan Ingram and Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino, as I love okay. to talk about myself in the third person, okay? It's not a chemistry issue, okay? We've had no, enough reps, not. okay? It's We've not. run enough routes together, Paul, oh, okay? Almighty. Whether the execution uh, and agreement is always there, that's a whole other Good stuff. Can of worms Good that stuff. we may not have enough time on this program to unravel. With okay. that being said, let's head back to the lines, and we check in with Len in Columbia, Maryland. What's happening, Len? Hey, guys. How you doing? Hello. Right, what do you got for hey, us? Hey, uh, a couple of things. First, I, I, I want to make sure I understand this whole thing about um, jumping up and catching the ball and other types of production. You, you guys wouldn't turn down Beckham-type numbers next year for our third wide receiver, would you? Well, somebody who puts up Beckham-type numbers is the number one receiver on the yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. He's probably well, I mean, not okay. the number three. Yeah, but <laughs> as one of the three. As one of the three. No, no, turn, that's why you... I, I'm – Len, let me make it very clear. Yeah, if please, Devante, please. If, the, if Devontae winds up on uh, on the Giants, that's, that's a great thing because he's a playmaker and explosive, and he'll help this offense. Let me make that very, very clear. But I will also tell you, if Allen Robinson winds up on this Giants offense, they're going to be a much better offense as well. Okay. Okay. I just wanted to make sure you you wouldn't turn down no. those, those kinds of numbers. And, and I and think Lance that. agrees with me on that one, too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you could have Odell Beckham production out of your number one wide receiver, you'd be crazy to sure. turn that okay. away. Right. I, just, I mean, I first of all, Darius sure. Slayton was uh, the right. number one guy okay. on the team this past okay. season. Right. From just a production okay. standpoint, you got okay. 50 receptions, 751 yards out of him, and three touchdowns. So, yeah, I think you want those numbers higher, and therefore, if a guy like Beckham outproduced him, of course you'd take Let's that. Let's make okay. it simple for you, Len. I want Darius Slayton to do what he does – 
and to be the second most productive receiver on the team. How about that? <laughs> Good for you. I'm for that. I'm for that. I, I agree with that. Part. Okay. Uh, quick, quick point on, on, on Doug Peterson. Um, never embarrass the boss. It'll cost you your job. Uh, third point. The I think there were more thing, issues than that, but well, I'm sorry? you can move along. I'm sorry, Lance, I missed. No, I, I think it, there's more than meets the eye than simply that as okay, to why you and I, ways. You and I disagree on that. I don't think so. Lurie's not telling Wait, so, so hold on. So Carson Wentz's dip in production was not a part of the evaluation in terms of moving on to a new head coach or the future of his contract and whether or not he's going to be with the team? You don't think that came into the conversation? Here's what I'm basing my comment on, Lance. Mr. Lurie can't go into the next owner's meeting without having fired Peterson. His partners would not accept him in that room. Okay, wait, can we move I, on? I mean, I don't think we he showed up his coach that much, but that's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. Yeah. I, I think it's, yes, okay, thank you. I, I think it's clearly, in my mind, that one thing. All right, uh, Devontae Smith, if, if he weighed 185 pounds, guys, I'd feel a lot better about him. Paul, I, I don't want to go back to something you and I and, and Jeff talked about because it was, you know, we talked on and on and on about the following thing. If I'm a general manager, I never draft anybody who weighs less than 180 pounds. Never draft them. Go out and shake the trees in your front yard and 40 of them will drop out. You know, Len, I, I would only, and I know it was a little bit different because guys were a little bit smaller back in the 80s and 90s, but, you know, Stephen Baker, the touchdown maker, made a ton of big plays for this team. And he was one of those guys who was very, very small. He was yes. a smurf, and, and he played outside. By the way, he wasn't a slot receiver either. No, I know. Baker right, played right. on the boundary. Right. And And, you know, the original thought was, how is this guy going to survive in the league? Yeah. Well, it turned out he played a half a dozen years and helped the Giants win a Super Bowl. So I don't, I don't want to make a big deal out of that. Okay. I only ask and raise the issue of his frame because if you have two guys who are very close in talent and big playability, yeah. do you allow his size and frame to become one of the measuring sticks? Is it one of the things that may separate him, even if it's only a millimeter, from somebody else? Might you want to take the guy who's got the bigger, sturdier frame? And that, and it's a question that I think can be asked. I'm not telling you that in any individual case there's a right or a wrong, but I think it's something that you'd want to think about. The yeah. other thing also, by the way, is that yeah. you're talking about bringing in a player that's 22 years old, and once you get him in your weight room, and you put him on a specific plan, who's to say that his body structure is going to be identical three or four years down the road? I mean, the point is, you're bringing in somebody that's a little bit raw from a body perspective to get them to the point where maybe you want them two to three years down the road. (laughs) Nobody comes in as a finished product. By the way, Lance, after they get done with him for combine training, of course, today's a big day at the NFL because today they're going to start discussing what they may or may not want to do with the combine. Keep your eyes on the news wires tonight and tomorrow yeah. because this yeah. is a very, very big day for the league. Yeah. Uh, that's just a side note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. who knows what he's going to come in uh, at yeah. the Combine yeah. because once the Combine trainers get a hold of him, yeah. his measurables are going to be different. Yeah, Paul, no way he comes in at 175. No, that's <laughs> not going to happen. Mortgage. I would bet the mortgage money on that. Yeah, he, now, he, he'll he definitely be in the – I bet you – 
I bet you he's going to be a lot closer to 185 than 170. Oh, I think so, too. He and, won't and drink 10, 10 pounds is going to be tough with that, frame. <laughs> with that frame. It's going to be tough. Can well, let's hope the finger can... doesn't get in the way of working out, but something yeah. tells me there's going to be a few more pounds on him. Yes, yeah. yes. yes. Um, can I say something about the tight ends? Yeah, real quick. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, quickly, um, AP announced uh, their all-pro teams the other day, first and second teams plus special teamers. Uh, the first team tight end was Travis Kelsey. Yep. The second team tight end was nobody. Yeah, well, because Kelsey got all the votes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that a problem? So, so yeah. what's the point? Yeah. He's really good. Who was the who who was the second best tight end in the NFL last year? Darren Waller was the second best tight end. He His deserved production the second was spot. off the charts. Yeah. He had okay. a career year. All right. Okay. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I'm lost, Len, in terms of what your point is. I don't think there was a guy good enough to be a second-team All-Pro player. Well, I completely disagree with you. I think no, if you watch Darren Waller, if you watched him consistently for 16 games, I think you'd be singing a different tune. And I'm not accusing you of not seeing him, but something right. tells me you didn't watch many Raiders games. I think David Carr would have an issue with you there, Len. Yeah. Derek Carr, yeah. Uh, Derek, I'm would, <laughs> I, Derek would I'm have an Giants. issue with I'm thinking with, Giants. Who, who, who yeah. would he have an issue with, me or Lance? <laughs> I have an issue with you, Len. Okay, all right. Car, I just Car, wanted, I, I, love this I guy. To make sure. I just, I just wanted to be clear about that. To, yeah, he to, loved to, this to, guy, man. Waller, Waller hey, had hey, Lance, big time were, production. Hey, hey, Lance, you were right about one thing. I probably saw about three quarters of Raider games this year. Well, there you go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. in fairness, okay. I, I would be careful with throwing around statements like that, Len. Okay. I get it. Well, You're a Giants well, fan, so I'm not saying I'm not well, faulting you. But if you watch Raiders games closely. This guy has the skill set and the what Paul and I were talking about guys making plays above the X's and O's. He makes plays. Darren Waller would make about two to three of them a game. He's okay, legit. not, not He's over legit. the course of a season, a game. Okay. That's how good this guy is. All right, um, uh, Godwin from Tampa Bay had four drops the other night. Would you guys rule him out as a possibility of another receiver because he drops the ball? Would you drop no, him I think off Chris off is a solid receiver. He had four four clear drops the other night. Right. Well, Deontay Johnson led the NFL in drops for the Steelers. Is Deontay Johnson now a Pittsburgh cut him tomorrow? Cross, would you cross Godwin off our list because he had four drops the other night on the big stage? No, I would not. Okay. Right, I would you. not cross him off the list, but there are other veteran free agent receivers I would prefer okay. ahead of him. All right. Um, 86, catch, 86 catches by Giants tight ends this year. About 800 yards, a little less than 10 yards a catch. All right, Ingram had 63 of those catches. Okay. 80, 86 is pretty high. Now, I didn't run through the whole league, guys, uh, but uh, Tampa Bay's uh, tight ends had 76 catches, okay? The, the big difference between the Giants' tight ends and other teams' tight ends, one touchdown for the Giants at 86 catches. Mm -hmm. Here's my frustration. We got 30 years of NFL offensive coaching experience in Garrett and Kitchens, and you can't co you can't coax one more tight uh, one more touchdown out of the tight ends. Quarterback, play calling, players themselves. Where do you think it is? I'll I'll take that answer offline. Thanks for taking my call, guys. Always good to talk to you. All right, Len. Thanks for the phone call, Lance. Before you answer that, and Len, I know uh, you're you're hanging up, but just as a matter of of uh, of a litmus test. My usual grade for, for catches and for receivers and tight ends particularly, I want their drop percentage to be less than 
that to me is where the line of deviation becomes. If the guy's drops exceeds 6% of his catches, that becomes a problem for me, and I'm not very happy about it. And, and Ingram's was over 10% this year, which does not make me, you know, obviously very happy. Um, 6% under 6% is kind of what I look for when I say, you know what, that guy's fine. I don't have an issue with him. Just as an FYI. I think those numbers are fair. I, I wouldn't want the numbers to go higher. I'll tell you that. I would want them to be lower. And I think anybody that has seen Evan Ingram and you bring up Deontay Johnson's another guy I brought up with the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know there's talented upside there that the only way that you bring a player down like that is the inability to execute. So, yeah, both of those players will be the first ones to tell you you've got to get that number lower in terms of the drop percentage. As far as the point about, Paul, touchdowns that you're getting out of the tight ends, once again, I don't know of a coach, and I'd be curious if this conversation had happened over the course of the last few off seasons, where any teams are going over and saying, well, you know, we only got this percentage of touchdowns from our tight ends. I mean, if your wide receivers are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, and I'm not saying that was the case with the Giants, I really don't think it matters how many touchdowns your tight ends get. I think it's a matter of who's open, who you're throwing to, and how are you scheming guys up to make sure you get into the end zone? To me, I'm not losing sleep over my wide receivers have the percentage of touchdowns versus the tight ends or the running backs. Get in the end zone. Who cares who gets the football? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Lance. I think to a microcosm point, it's an issue where the Giants just did not have a, enough passing touchdowns during the course of the season to make this offense respectable enough to where they could put up more points. Um, so, yes, Len, you're right. Did the Giants' tight ends not have very many touchdowns, and is that a problem? Sure it is. If you look at the big picture, they just did not have enough of guys get into the end zone, period. So I, I also agree, though, with Lance's point. You know, if you have 25 touchdown receptions during the course of the season and your tight ends only had two or three, well, hey, you know what? It means you're exploding in other spots, and there's not, nothing wrong with that. They had 12 passing touchdowns. <laughs> so, yeah, I good. get it. I get it. The tight ends only accounted for one of them. Okay. But we're talking about one out of 12. To your point, if I doubled the touchdowns, if it was 25 and your tight ends got one of the 25, yeah, maybe we have something to discuss. But when you have 12 total touchdowns and your tight ends get just one of them, I don't know if I'm necessarily going crazy over that. I, I just think, once again, perspective is important in terms of the volume. And I'll give you another statistic, once again, just to further emphasize how the passing game struggled just in terms of pure Giants history. Forget what happened in the league alone this year. We talked about how the Giants didn't have a 300-yard passer between Colt McCoy and Daniel Jones. Okay, Darius Slayton led the Giants with three touchdown receptions, and no one wound up exceeding that total in the final game. So this is the first season, Paul, since 1978, in which the Giants did not have a player with more than three touchdowns in a single season. How about that number? 1978, Shepard and Slayton finished with three apiece because Shepard got the one receiving touchdown against the Cowboys. That's it. That's the first time since 1978 we're talking about where you had nobody as an individual with more than three, and we're going to sit here and debate that the tight ends <laughs> didn't give you enough touchdowns this season? And Come should on. I remind people that Joe Pizarczyk was the one throwing the ball that year? There you go. Well, by the way, for you history oh. buffs, Johnny Perkins and Al Dixon 
We're tied for the team lead with three apiece. Now, don't be year. slamming Johnny Perkins. Out I'm of not Abilene slamming Christian. anybody. I'm just I'm giving a you names. Big Johnny Perkins yeah. guy. Liked him a lot. Used to have a lot of injuries, though. Unfortunately, his hamstring was always acting up. But Johnny could play. He was a good player. And he had some height on him, too. Height and length. Kind of receiver I really like. There you go. I was going to say, he hits all the check marks for Paul Dettino. He no does. wonder you feel very fond of him. All right. With that being said, that's going to wrap things up for us here on Tuesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Presented by New York Lottery. Get out there and play. As a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network. Brought to you by Investors Bank on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcast. We'll be back up and running again on Wednesday with a new edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live at noon Eastern. For Paul Dettino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.